Good morning, warm peoples. It's so much nicer to walk into a warm building, isn't it? I did, or well, I felt nice anyway. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the rich blessings you give us in Christ, and we thank you for this passage. Help us to understand, give us ears to hear, to really perceive what is going on. Help us to understand the failure of Israel and its leadership, and to look to Jesus and to understand what is good and worthy leadership. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes a leader worth following? Is it money and success? Is it they're cashed up to the kazoo and they've got so much money that I want to follow that person because they're just, they're just loaded. They can surely look after me. Or is it great vision? They're a visionary person. They will go forward out to places and they're going to present this beautiful vision and you go, wow, that looks so good. They present such a great vision. I don't know if they're going to get there, but I'm going to go with them anyway. Is it good looks? Looking at Joe? Probably not. Is it great ability? They're just fantastic at everything they do. Man, they're just, they play the, they play the guitar, they sing songs, they can do everything. I don't know why playing the guitar and singing songs makes you being able to do everything, but they can do everything. What truly makes a leader worth following? The recent federal election was really tough for me. I had no idea who to vote for. Growing up in my family, we always loved to talk about politics and policy. That was the dinner table talk in our house. And that was, that was really what we got into. And so usually when elections come around, my family, we're always excited. We get to talking. We argue about policies and debates and we ask, we ask the differences. What's the difference between Labor and the Liberals? Why would voting for one change Australia for the better? Why would voting for the other really destroy the world? You know, as I look back, I think my family might have been a tad hyperbolic about the whole situation. We might have got a tad emotionally involved. But we would always argue what we thought was best for the country. And as I came to this last election, it was with some surprise. As I looked and thought about who I'd vote for, I was like, is this it? Is this the best we've got? Who's the change candidate? Clive Palmer? Well, if I vote for Clive, maybe we'll get the Titanic too. I didn't think any of them were worth following. And so I did something I thought I would never do. I parked my vote with someone I knew would lose the election, not Clive. There are limits. But when I saw the results, I guess I wasn't alone. Combined, the two major parties barely scraped together two-thirds of the nation's compulsory vote. And no matter how effective our political leadership may or may not be, that level of vote shows people are losing confidence in our leaders. 
And if Anthony Albanese thinks he has a mandate for the full implementation of his party's platform with just 31% of the vote, he's kidding himself. It would be wise of him to go slow and judiciously. Whatever the results of our political leaders, there is a loss of confidence in our leadership in our society. People are starting to think these are people not worth following. And the question is, why? But the more important question is, well, what makes a leader worth following? Why should we follow any leader? This morning we're going to be looking at Jesus and we're going to be asking this question. What makes Jesus a leader worth following? What is it about Jesus that keeps people coming back to him and saying, I want to be like this guy some 2,000 years later? The last couple of weeks we've been looking at Jesus as he's been speaking to the crowds and he's been doing these miracles. And as he's done these signs, people have been trying to figure out who he is. Why has been, he been saying the things that he's been saying? And he's got into these massive fights with the religious leaders of the day. And last week was a bit of a turning point because Jesus makes clear in his teaching that there are insiders and that there are outsiders. That his teaching is like a sift, that it separates the wheat from the chaff. And in a lot of ways, this passage is a continuation of the hearing test that Joe gave us last week. As we watch the various people and the various groups respond to who Jesus is, as we watch them respond to Jesus' miracles, and the question remains, how's your hearing? And so the passage opens up with the leaders of Israel fleecing the masses through their leadership. Herod questions the miracles and he's wondering what's them what's going on what are they all about and the chapter really has three accounts of people's response to miracles surrounding what Jesus is doing and this first one takes the perspective of an outsider looking at the miracles and questioning the latter two will take an insider's view or the view from the um, disciples So as to the question of whether miracles can happen or not, and that is a question that we have today, and there are some merits to that question. But in truth, that will be largely determined upon your prejudices. From the Bible's perspective, if God can make the universe, then surely he can feed 5,000 peasants in the wilderness. Miracles will neither prove or disprove God's existence, much as atheists might like to claim they should. They just don't do that. See, the leaders in Jesus' day, they didn't have the luxury of just claiming, well, miracles can't happen, that they're impossible. They couldn't claim that because, well, the people would have stopped listening to them there and then. The people could see the miracles. They could see what Jesus was doing. They would have known the leaders were lying to them. So the leaders looked for other reasons to explain these signs away. And so we come to Herod's reason. Maybe John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And you go, what? How's that 
an explanation. And in terms of the gospel, it sort of comes out of nowhere. So Matthew gives, so because it comes out of nowhere, you're going, what do you mean John the Baptist is dead? So Matthew gives us an account of John's death. But we see in Herod's explanation of Jesus, of Jesus' miracles, that his explanation says more about him than it does about Jesus. What had happened? Herod had thrown a massive birthday party for himself and his mates. At that party, he gets his stepdaughter, the daughter of his wife, Herodias, to dance at the party. She's a young woman. She's quite pretty. Here is, John, here is where John the Baptist fits in. Herodias had been married to Herod's brother, Philip, and Herodias had given Philip the heave-ho to sleep with and marry Herod. Herod and Herodias were committing adultery and by marrying each other they were breaking God's law that God had laid down for Israel. John the Baptist had called them out on it and so they did. They repented of their evil, they asked for forgiveness and put everything right. Of course that's not what they did. They did what powerful people always do when someone calls out their evil and they don't want to change. They shoot the messenger. They had John killed. And to compound just how evil they were, they did it at a feast, at a birthday party of all places. Israel's leaders had failed. The scene recounted shows the depravity of the leaders. Were they like this all the time? No. But it shows their real feelings for those whom they lead. They just don't care. They are self-centred and selfish, bloated on food, bound in sexual immorality, blinded to their brutality through their murder of John. They had become the very epitome, the very definition, the very example of failed leadership. They are such self-serving people that Israel seems to be an afterthought. And that is why thinking about miracles or whether they take place can be such a trap because the passage isn't really about miracles. It's about leadership. And we can miss that in reading or when we don't read this whole section as a as a critique on leadership do i think that during herod's party jesus was in the wilderness feeding the people clearly he wasn't because we are told after this happens that jesus moves into the wilderness but the truth is it doesn't matter matthew has placed it here to make this point israel's leadership has failed israel has failed the national leaders the nation's leaders are not interested in God or in anything else he has to say for that matter. And you can see that in their parties. Think about this party. Think about that party they were at. How macabre a scene can you have? Or can you imagine if you were at the international dinner last night? Great night. Should have been there. It was fantastic. Calhoun's. Go and see 
their satay chicken. My goodness, that was fantastic. Anyway, imagine this scene. You're there at the party and someone says, bring out the fruit platter, bring out the cake, bring out the sexy stepdaughter so she can dance with us. Hey, boy. Oh, by the way, bring out the head of John the Baptist. We're missing that plate. How callous, how hard-hearted do you have to be? How insensitive you have to be to do something this evil. Herodias is so evil to even consider doing something this bad. And Herod is a spineless, feckless, weak leader. He is so pathetic that he doesn't even have the cojones to say to his wife in front of his guest, hey, no, this is obviously wrong. And so Herodias wins. I don't like that he keeps pointing out my evil. So kill him. Silence him. I don't care what it takes. Just get rid of him. Oh, good. Now he's silent. Bring out his head now that his mouth can't speak. This is what happens to innocent people. Take note, Israel. This is the depravity of Israel's leadership. Come orgies, come sexual immorality, come unbridled injustice, come murder. They just don't care. It's so interesting in Bible study this week, we were looking at Matthew 9 and I saw these words on Jesus' lips. As he was speaking to the religious leaders, he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And just a few weeks ago, as Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees about the Sabbath and their ruthless and foolish use of the law, Jesus says again, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What do we have here in Israel's leadership? Absolutely no mercy and the sacrifice of the innocent. They do not see their evil because they do not want to. They are not worthy leaders because they care for nothing and no one but themselves. And so we turn to the second view of miracles. We watch how Jesus' disciples respond and instead of looking from the outside, we start to move to the inside of God's kingdom and we'll watch Jesus feeding the masses instead of fleecing them. And this section opens with John, uh, with Jesus moving away from Israel's leadership. The death of John the Baptist shows they want nothing to do with God. And so we read, When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. And as he stepped ashore, he saw a huge crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Mark's Gospel puts it like this. So he stepped ashore, he saw a huge crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then he began to teach them many things. And it's, it's, as you read this passage, it's hard not to have Mark's account in mind. As I read it, I was sort of jumping between the two. But I'll stick mainly with Matthew's account. What's interesting in this section is how the disciples respond to Jesus. Because we're going to view what's, going to go, what's happening through their eyes. 
in terms of what's about to take place. They see the crowds. They know where they are. That is the perspective through which we're meant to understand this account. And so the disciples seeing the crowd and understanding the problem, there's a lot of people and they've got nothing to eat. Have the crowds come out to the wilderness to die? That's the problem they see. So they say to Jesus and tell him what to do. Jesus! Send the people away, else they will go hungry and die. That way, this problem will be solved. And if we're paying attention, we see that in their initial response, they have completely misunderstood Jesus. They are the followers. That is what the word disciple means, to be a follower. But here are the followers telling the leader how to solve the problem. But when you think about it, their solution, well, it seems to make sense. They don't have, a food, they don't have the food for a crowd like this. There are no Woolworths. There's no Costco chicken down the road. The people need to eat and they can't feed them. And though they are not as heartless as Israel's leaders, their answer is still the same. Send the people away hungry, unfed. Scatter the flock. So you can imagine their surprise when Jesus says this. Don't send, they don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fish, they said to him. Bring them to me, he said. What do you want us to do, Jesus? We can't do, can't do, are you kidding? When reading this passage, you need to keep in mind what has just happened before in the gospel. Jesus has just been explaining the, the nature of the kingdom to the disciples and he gives them all these parables to explain the nature of the kingdom and he says at the end of the chapter, have you understood all these things? And they go, yes, yes, we have. Now, when we were discussing chapter 13 in staff meeting, I burst out laughing at their yes. Why? Because they clearly haven't understood what's going on. They clearly haven't gotten it. If they had gotten, they wouldn't have been telling Jesus what to do. The disciples still haven't understood they want to scatter the people away. But instead of failing to feed the sheep, if they had tried, Jesus says, bring the people to me. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowd. Everyone ate and was filled. Then they picked up the tall basket full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. What Jesus does is what he did for Israel all those years ago as Israel had fled from Egypt. He feeds his people in the wilderness. And if you are super alert, you'll remember Israel's journey through the wilderness and Jesus' words from Deuteronomy to Satan. 
What does it say? Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you're only interested in miracles as proof of God's existence, then no miracle will ever be enough. That is not what the miracles are about. And they will never prove God's existence to anyone. What the miracle says is this. God has come to gather his people. The good shepherd has come for his sheep. He has come to feed his people, not with bread. It is easy to give people bread. But to those who truly hear, he has come to feed his people with the word of God. This is why understanding that this miracle is seen through the eyes of the disciples is so important. See, though Jesus cares for the crowds, and he does, he's speaking to the disciples. The crowds have no idea. They just, where did the bread come from? Who cares? Just give me bread. But if you're on the inside, and if you're listening well, you should be asking, who is this man? Why has he done this? Why do this specific act? And as you see Jesus feeding the crowds in the desert, you are reminded of Psalm, well, I can't help but be reminded of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He lays me down in green pastures. He lays me beside quiet waters. What is the miracle saying? The good shepherd has come. And in contrast to the failed Israel, uh, leadership of Israel, the failed leadership of the world, he has come to care for his sheep. That is what the miracle is saying to the people. That is what the miracle says to his people. Are we listening? Which leads us into the final miracle of our passage and how the people respond. He is followed by the masses. After feeding and caring for the crowd, Jesus dismisses them. And then he sends his disciples ahead of him on the sea. And after, after the failing of the feast, they do as they are told this time. And you can imagine how they might have felt they must have been a bit shocked at being sent ahead. You can imagine the conversation at the boat might have gone something like this. What's he going to do? Who knows what he's going to do? But I'm sure he'll figure it out. Just do what he says. And as you read it, you get the idea that uh, Jesus is sort of setting them up here, that this is deliberately done for his purposes. So regardless, the disciples set off. And as they proceed across the sea, they're struck by a storm and it halts their progress. And so we pick up at verse 27. Immediately Jesus spoke to them, Have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter answered him, command me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Those in the boat worshipped him and said, Truly you are the Son of God. Now there's a bit going on here in this section, but this is where the rubber hits the road for the passage. And there are three points that I could speak quite long about, but I don't have time to do them justice. So I'm just going to point out some of them and basically just keep going. And the first one is this. It is Jesus' name. Jesus is telling the disciples that he is God and he does that through his name. He says that I am. And this is a reference to the divine name of God. God's name means he is who he is or it's just the verb. So the verb to be or the verb is. God's name means I am who I am. Now you add that in conjunction with Psalm 89 verse 9 where uh, the Bible says this, you rule the waging seas, when its waves surge, you steal them. Is it a direct reference? No. But the circumstances combined with the divine name plus the guy is walking on the water. It sort of indicates that Jesus is God. That is the first point, that Jesus is claiming to be God. Second point, point two. And this is where I'm going to slow down a bit. Peter, seeing Jesus and believing he is God, asked to walk out to him. And so Jesus says, all right, come out. And so Peter walks out and he starts off well. But before long, he runs into trouble. He sees the wind, he sees the waves, he sees the storm and he panics. And it makes sense that he panics. He's a long way from shore. We are told he's about one mile. That is about 30 laps of an Olympic-sized swimming pool. I used to swim for a kilometre for exercise and probably should do it again. It would take me about 30 minutes to swim a kilometre. For Peter to do that at night during a storm with probably no reference markers as to which way he should go, Peter the fisherman knows he will die if he sinks. In the calamity and in the stress of the moment, he loses focus on Jesus and he begins to sink. Now, the main implication of this passage is clear. When you take your focus off Jesus, we begin to sink. And that is true enough. But that is not the main application of this passage. If you look at life and look at the reality of life and look at how it really is, if this passage was, if you take your focus off Jesus, you will die, we'd all be in trouble. Because we all fail, we all flail about, we all get things wrong. If it's just about our action, we would be lost. But if you look again carefully at the passage, you read, and, he begin, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out his hand caught and caught hold of him. I think this is the main point and really the main action of the point. Though Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, Jesus never takes his eyes off Peter. 
though Peter is rightly rebuked for his lack of faith, you can look at the rebuke and miss the point, miss what Jesus has done, that it is Jesus who has stretched out his hand and taken hold of Peter, that it is Jesus that has saved Peter. And it, this taking out and stretching of his hand, it's, it's a common action throughout the gospel. I was listening to Kanishka this week speaking about another set of miracles uh, that Jesus was doing and he was referencing Jairus' daughter. And as he spoke, he referenced how Jesus takes her by the hand and lifts her up and speaks to her. And that's the simple act of taking of the hand. It's such a reassuring and caring act. And here Jesus does it again with Peter. He takes him by the hand in the midst of the storm. And in that action, he is saying to Peter, I am there for you. Though you lose your focus on me, I am laser focused on you. And that is the good news for us. We all walk through life. We all have distractions. We all flip-flop, flail about. But even in our failures, even in our follies, Jesus will never let us go. Through the hardships, through the tough times, through the strains, the struggles, the ups and downs of the Christian journey, we like to think that the Christian life is this constant growing and ever going closer to God, that through our life we will just constantly sail and get better. And it's just not like that. You go up, you go down, you go left, you go right, you go everywhere throughout the Christian life. And what God is saying to us, what Jesus is saying to us, even in all those flops and flails, he is there for us. It is the characteristic that makes Jesus worth following. He never loses sight of his people. What makes Jesus a leader worth following? Is it his great looks? Well, we never get a description of how he looks. Is it his vast wealth? He was poor throughout his earthly life. What makes Jesus worth following is really two characteristics. One, he is laser-focused on his people. And second, he is a person who always keeps his promises. As we go forth and we wonder, should I follow, should we follow this man? The answer is clearly yes. Jesus is a leader worth following throughout all our days. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus who is a leader who is worth following. We pray, Father, that we will understand this, that we will live for his sake and we will live for his glory. Help us to be people who constantly look to Jesus, but even as we flail, even as we flop, help us to always remember that he is always looking at us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.